Sarah. Hi, Allison. So um, we're going to talk about COVID this mm-hmm. episode. We've managed to not talk about it not for too much, a while, yeah. not too much. But um, but it, it's it's really it's really getting there. And I, honestly, I'm I'm kind of feeling down about it all. Oh. And, and France in general, I think, mm-hmm. is feeling stuck. And it, it's mm. really, I think, it's just hard to see the end of it all. I completely agree. The mm. infection rates are creeping up again due to all these variants. Although it has to be said that numbers of deaths are down. The numbers of deaths are down, that's true. But we also have this very slow, some would say bungled vaccine campaign. Um, I know so many people in the United States, my family included, who've had their vaccines, both shots mm. even. I can count on one hand the people I know who've had them here. And and I'd say not even my 95-year-old neighbor has had hers. Goodness me, not even 95. That's amazing. She must be very, very sturdy. The only people I know here in France who've had it um, have quite serious health problems. Uh, whereas in the UK, my country of birth, everyone in my family over the age of 60 has had their first vaccine, regardless of what their state of health is. Yeah, yeah. Macron, um, the French president, has said uh, adults who wanted a vaccine would be offered it by the end of the summer. But I really have to wonder about that. I mean, the latest stats from COVID Tracker, which is a site that compiles official statistics, say that three million people have had their first injection since the start of the vaccination drive at the end of December. And 1.6 million have had their second. Mm, But then France's population is 65 million. Mm -hmm. Um, So a long way to go. France is lagging behind other countries, uh, notably the the UK, uh, the US, of course. Yeah, Italy, Spain. I mean, COVID Tracker points out that at the current rate of vaccination in France to get all 52 million adults here vaccinated will take until May 7th, 2023. (laughs) Right. Okay, we're not going anywhere soon, are we? Um, Clearly, France needs to up its game. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, they're working on it, and it will probably speed up. There are definitely issues with distribution. Um, There are nearly 8 million doses available in France, but people aren't getting them. The government does say it's streamlining things that should change soon. Yeah, as of last week, GPs are being allowed to administer the AstraZeneca shots, Mm -hmm. and pharmacies are supposedly going to be able to do that too. They, They currently do flu shots. Yeah, there have been major issues, though, with the AstraZeneca vaccine in France, not the least of which is its image problem. Uh, The government first said it was for health professionals and then people 50 to 64 years old with underlying health issues like diabetes and cancer. Macron then came out and said it didn't work or it wasn't effective for those over the age of 65. Yeah, almost ineffective, he said, Yeah, Uh, which wasn't exactly true. It was just that a month ago when he was speaking, there wasn't enough information around and we didn't really have the, the results of the tests of the vaccines on older people. Yeah, and the way he phrased it, though, made everyone wonder if it was effective at all. And now, even though it has been shown to be effective for anyone, and it actually has been approved in France for people over 65, it it's, it's has a bad reputation. It's kind of seen as inferior. Uh, one commenter I heard put it that the AstraZeneca vaccine is the Lada, whereas mm. the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are the Mercedes of vaccines. Oh, that's funny. I know disrespect to the Russians, but who would want to drive a Lada when you can cruise along in a Mercedes. Yeah, yeah. So even though the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be more accessible, easier to store and transport and administer, the damage to its reputation has been done. There's an uphill battle there to get back to it. Um, The vaccine rollout has been slow, not just because of that. There's also logistics issues. For example, appointments are hard to get. It Mm -hmm. really depends on where you are and who you are. Yeah, and it seems to be that those who are a bit more internet savvy 
get the spots. And mm -hmm. given that most vaccines are currently going to the over 65s, and internet isn't necessarily their strong point, is it? Exactly. Yeah. And in Saint Saint Denis, which is the poor department north of Paris, some vaccination centers are actually reporting that more Parisians than locals are getting the spots. Um, it's what Dr. Olivier Bouchot, is the head of infectious diseases at the Avicenne Hospital in Bobigny, a city in Saint Saint Denis, told RFI. Il est vraisemblable que les personnes qui ont le plus de facilité it's quite plausible, he says, that people who have easier access to Internet are taking the appointments. People in Seine-Saint-Denis do have difficulty accessing the Internet. He calls this the fracture numérique, or the digital divide. It plays a role in the imbalance of access to the vaccine, with relatively few local residents getting appointments and many residents of other departments, notably Parisians, taking the spots. He says there's not much to do about it on the level of the vaccine platforms themselves. The reservation system doesn't have a filter, he says. It'd be difficult to put one in place because it would have to take people at their word. If you ask, are you a resident of Seine-Saint-Denis, anyone can say yes, even if they don't live there. Now, the issue, of course, is a broader one about access to the Internet, not just a problem in France. It's around the world. Those without access lose out on vaccines and all sorts of other things. Um, to deal with the vaccine issue, some cities in Seine-Saint-Denis and elsewhere have put in place vaccination buses. So they'll show up in a neighborhood and offer vaccinations to those who are eligible, kind of coming to the people rather than having people come to the centers. And in general, there is some hope, isn't there, that vaccination numbers will go up mm -hmm. as the, the doctors start to administer the AstraZeneca jabs and people see that it works and the logistics get smoother. Yeah, yeah. And, and in some good news, people in care homes have been covered. Apparently over 80% of residents have received their first injection. Um, and this may very well be what's contributing to the drop in COVID deaths in France. There's now even talk of allowing them to leave to go visit family, which, you know, they haven't been able to do until now. They've kind of been virtual prisoners. Mm. But um, lest we get too optimistic, <laughs> we're still facing restrictions as cases are going up in France. Yeah, and there are still concerns that there might be a weekend lockdown here in Paris, which is mm -hmm. already the case in Nice and Dunkirk in the yeah. north. Yeah, that plus the lack of, of the positive outlook for vaccines right away is going to make for a lot of frustrated people, me included. Action! So France, a country of cinema. There were just over 300 productions shot here in 2019, and many of them in Paris with uh, its instantly recognizable landmarks. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, just in general in streets, you got used to seeing roads blocked off. It's really part of Paris life. But the cameras stopped turning very dramatically on March the 17th last year when the whole mm. country went into nationwide lockdown. It was the first day of the lockdown in France and it was the 17th of March. I was um, preparing a shooting with Raoul Peck in the uh, Dominican Republic and they closed the border. They said, OK, now you have to go back to France and you have to leave everything. And it was just one day before the shooting. So we prepared the shooting during two months and then we lost everything. We stopped everything and we came back. So that's Laure Montréal. She's been working as an assistant director for nearly three decades now, mostly on movies. 
After that first two-month lockdown last spring, she, like many in the film industry, had the blues. In uh, April, May, at the end of the first lockdown, all the industry, everybody was afraid and everybody was very down. It was terrible. And all the producers told us, okay, so we are going to stop everything and perhaps in March 2021 we begin again. But no. It began and uh, everybody, quite everybody, uh, walked. I think so. Oh, so things did pick up. I mean, I guess people needed things to watch while they're staying home. Indeed, quite a lot of films are being made, in fact, especially for online platforms like Netflix. The Lupin series, for example, starring Omar Sy, which has been a real blockbuster, is just one example of um, you know, lockdown filming. Mm. The CNC, the French National Film Board, told me that 450 films have been shot in France since May 2020. That's huge. It hasn't even been a year. Wow. Um, How have they managed that? I mean, sets really seem like the perfect places to spread the the COVID virus. Well, they've done a number of things. Uh, There's a hefty 46-page COVID protocol which has been published, which Mm. film sets are supposed to follow. For example, limiting the number of people on set, obligatory wearing of masks, using hand gel, disinfecting surfaces, all that kind of thing. There are no collective canteens on set anymore. Uh, You have these sort of takeaway meals like you do on aeroplanes. And they limit the number of people in the vehicles, for example, when you're traveling around. And they actively encourage film sets to have a doctor or a nurse on set, a COVID referent or specialist, if you like, to make sure that all these rules are followed. It's not an obligation, but it does keep the insurance companies happy. So Elizabeth Lequeré spoke to a nurse on set called Guillaume. He used to work in intensive care, but recently he switched to doing COVID prevention. On passe toutes les heures, voire toutes les deux heures, pour laver les mains. On leur fournit du gel hydroalcoolique. So we come by every couple of hours to tell them to wash their hands. We provide them with gel, he says. And around every four hours, we change their masks. We're not the police, though. We're here to teach them so that they learn to manage the situation themselves and avoid getting contaminated so that the shoot can continue. Right, because that's important. That's where you yeah. lose money if things get delayed. What about, like, scenes where actors get physical with each other, you know, like kissing or love scenes. I mean, are the scripts themselves getting adapted to avoid it? The COVID protocol document does recommend rewriting love scenes wherever possible, uh, along Mm. with fight scenes, any form of close contact. In fact, I asked several people about this and they said they hadn't seen much rewriting going on at all. In fact, leading actors are a bit of a special case. Unlike the crew and the extras, I was told that often they end up not wearing masks because they'd have to redo their makeup all the time and that would just slow everything down. Right. Guillaume says that his employer, Medica Event, encourages them to get tested regularly. We offer them a PCR test every two weeks, he says, and 99% of people accept. That limits the risk of contamination. Um, Can the nurses stop a shoot if they see, you know, particularly risky behavior? Guillaume said that he could make recommendations, but there was no question of taking over the director's role. (laughs) 
of course, Sarah, despite all these, you know, best efforts, every effort you can make on set, some people have got COVID and filming has been interrupted often for a couple of weeks. The latest film that Laure Montréal worked on, uh, Saison, 16 years, was stopped for three months, though. Oh, wow. Uh, they began the 35-day shoot in early October, but then after just 17 days, both the director and the two leading actors came down with COVID. Aye. So every week she was thinking to herself they might get back into it, but the director was quite frail. It took him a long time to recover. And they finally picked up again on the 20th of January. So what had started out as an autumn shoot then turned into a winter one, posing really big challenges in terms of continuity. The trees, for example, had lost their leaves. It was very difficult in January. So we brought, we stick some other trees. <laughs> well, and literally stuck them onto the yes. other trees to make it look like there were more leaves. Exactly. Yeah, and, and sometimes with a visual effect too, uh, we can add something. It was very difficult for the actors too, because they, they were cold, very yeah. cold, yes. Yeah. Because we finished the shooting, it was uh, 11, 12 and uh, 13 of February, and uh, outside it was minus five. <laughs> And then there is the mask issue, because in the intervening period, France had made it compulsory to wear masks everywhere, outdoors. It's more difficult now, because when we want to shoot on the street, for example, we have to stop everybody. No one can cross the street because we don't want any mask on the screen, on the frame. And sometimes it's difficult too with the, with the cars, because people sometimes they have the mask when they drive the car. But we cannot, <laughs> we cannot cut everybody, we cannot stop everybody, that's very difficult. So we have to hire other assistant, more assistant, to block everybody. So hiring those extra staff means, of course, extra costs. Then there's paying for the masks themselves, there's the nurse and many other things. Some people say that the film budgets have increased by 10% because of COVID. Yeah, and I guess there's still a lot of uncertainty over when and if these films will be shown, you know, to recoup that money, mm. given that cinemas are still closed. Yeah, and we have no idea when uh, they will open. And there are fears that when they do, there'll be a backlog. Um, it has to be said that it's a safer bet to work in TV. And that's been pulling in a lot of people, as Laure Montréal discovered. Right now, I cannot find a good second assistant director to assist me because everybody is busy. They, they are doing a lot of uh, series, more series than uh, feature films. So a lot more work in TV? Because of Netflix and uh, Amazon, Apple, and French series too. Do you think this boost to the TV industry could actually end up having a negative impact on the film industry? Yes, everybody is telling that, but uh, I'm very uh, positive and optimistic, and I think uh, our industry is so flexible and we can adapt uh, ourselves to quite everything, so I think we, we find solutions to save movies. Well, it's good to hear that somebody has such a positive attitude on these things for a change. <laughs>
Sarah, does this song ring any bells? Mm, no, but I did catch the word légionnaire in there. Well done. It is the official anthem of the Légion étrangère, the French Foreign Legion. So that's the elite infantry unit of the French army. It was founded on the 10th of March 1831, so 190 years ago. And that song is called Le Boudin. Uh, Boudin means blood sausage, black pudding. What's, what's the connection there? Well, a boudin was a colloquial expression for the soldier's gear, which they would, they would then roll up in a red blanket, so a ah. bloody sausage, a, a, <laughs> like a, a bed roll, and they then put that on top of their backpacks. They're singing, our ancestors knew how to die for the glory of the legion. We will know how to perish according to tradition. They also sing about their faraway campaigns, facing fever and fire, hardship and death. Oh, wow, that, yeah. that's intense. Um, but I've never seen them in action, obviously, but I've seen them parading on Bastille Day in Paris, you know, with their, their white caps. They're, they're not easy to miss. Yeah, they always bring up the rear, don't they? Because it mm -hmm. turns out that they march at a slower pace than regular armies, just 86 steps per minute rather than 120. Ah, so special forces, a, a bit yeah. apart. What's, what's that all about? Well, they are special, aren't they? They're unique in the world for a start. So only men, mm -hmm. uh, around 9,000 in the unit, they sign up for a five-year contract. The commanding officers are French, but 90% or more of the fighters are foreign. And ah. they come from around 147 countries at the moment. Right. Um, it was set up in 1831. This was right around the time that France took over Algeria. Exactly. It was created by King Louis-Philippe. Uh, on the 10th of March 1831 to strengthen France's presence in Algeria. Basically, the French expeditionary force that had occupied Algiers in 1830 needed backup, so France set up this special unit using its recently disbanded Swiss and German foreign regiments. Throughout the 19th century, the Legion was used to protect and expand the French colonial empire. It took part in all the major conflicts, of course, including the two world wars, and these soldiers always took on the most dangerous missions. Interestingly, it was almost disbanded during the Algerian War of Independence when some officers took part in the failed coup in 1961 to try and force President de Gaulle not to abandon French Algeria. Mm, so kind of wanting to keep the colonial legacy alive. Um, the Legion today has the reputation of being like a haven for criminals. You know, you sign up, no questions asked. In the early days, it was certainly a lot like that. Men sort of escaped prison, joined the Legion. Mm. That's less the case now. New recruits are given a much stricter background checks. But still, you do get a new identity. So it is still a chance for some people to turn a new page. One of the big pools is that you can apply for French citizenship after serving for three years in the Legion. Well, that must be hard to get in then. So France doesn't usually hand out nationality all that easily. Indeed, the recruitment tests and the four-month basic training are considered very, very tough, and many people drop out after six months. Getting nationality is possible, but it's far from systematic. It requires a certificate of good behaviour, and so you can't afford to put a foot wrong, basically. Some people have pointed out that the system itself can be open to abuse. People who sign up with the promise of nationality are then 
if you like, at the mercy of a handful of commanding officers. Mm, yeah, since it is made up of foreigners. And, and given the makeup, like how are things faring with COVID with, with travel restrictions from abroad? Yeah, it turns out it's struggling because there are usually around 8,000 new applicants each year and just over 1,000 of those men are recruited. These days, applications from, for example, South America and the African continent are right down. All of that has worried Parliament so much that in June of last year, it voted emergency measures which allow the Legion to keep soldiers on beyond the usual age limits or the length of their contracts and also to re-recruit former Legionnaires. Let's talk about scientists, right? They want data. And there's a project going on in France, which is a scientist or an epidemiologist dream. It's called the Constance Cohort. That sounds very technical. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it involves ordinary people. So a cohort in epidemiological terms is a group of people that's tracked over time. It's called a longitudinal study. The Constance Cohort is over 200,000 people in France. Mm. They've volunteered. They've signed up to be tracked for 30 years. Um, they get physical exams every few years, and they answer yearly questionnaires. It was launched in 2013, though only in the last couple of years they've ha gotten enough participants, of course, all volunteers, and they gather a lot of data. It's yielded interesting insights into various aspects of French people's lives, information on obesity, on smoking. Most recently, researchers use blood samples that have been collected by Constance to find that COVID had been circulating in France well before the first official case in January 2020, maybe even calling into question the origins of the virus in China. Oh, that could be quite explosive information, in fact. Yeah, yeah, and interesting where it came from. So, so when I heard about this, I was curious to know more about Constance. Also because, you know, full disclosure here, my partner is actually one of the volunteers who mm, got tapped and he agreed to do it. <laughs> so I contacted Marcel Goldberg, who's an epidemiologist with INSERM, the French National Health and Medical Research Institute, and the co-founder of Constance. And he's actually one of the participants, too. I was selected randomly because I had the, the good age uh, living in the right area. So you didn't just say, I'm going to be part of it because this is my project. No, no. It's a random selection. The reason is that uh, we wanted to have a very diverse sample. You know, we oversampled, for instance, workers because we know, we know that usually they participate place. We invited much more blue collars than high-level executives. And finally, we have a sample which is very, it is very balanced uh, regarding social uh, position. So the volunteers in this cohort are meant to be a cross-section of French society, and it documents people's health, but also occupational hazards, environmental exposures. It's also linked with national health databases, which in France are centralized through the social security system. So the data includes people's hospitalizations and the medicines they take. So it's really comprehensive by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the idea. Um, Goldberg's own interest is in occupational health. So how people's work affects their health. And with COVID, that's definitely been very interesting recently. For COVID, we made a special survey. We asked people a lot of questions on how they manage during, uh, uh, you know, lockdown and after and the working condition, uh, housing conditions, their work contracts. So this helps a general understanding of what it's doing to us mentally, physically, health-wise. So there's, there's questionnaires that are sent to the participants. Who decides that? I mean, is that based on the kind of research that needs to be done? Because that's key, right? The questions that get asked. Yeah, of course. Uh, 
We gathered a lot of uh, colleagues, experts in different areas, you know, people working in cancer, people working in the cardiovascular disease, in mental health, and so on. They helped us to build the questionnaires at the beginning, but also continuously. To give you an idea, we have a colleague working at IAC, International Agency for Research on Cancer, who asked us to ask some question of tattoo, because they think that, you know, the ink can contain some carcinogenic. So we, we had a question on that, and that's the way it works. Interesting. Yeah, so there's a question, and I mean, it's an ama- it seems like an amazing tool to say, hey, I'd like to know this. Let, let's stick it in. <laughs> it is. It, is it, it, it was designed for that. You know, it's like an observatory. It's a big scientific instrument, which is not designed to answer one specific question, but open to different uh, research areas. So, but in general, this and maybe even previous cohorts you've looked at, I mean, what does it tell us about France? We already made, uh, you know, transnational comparisons, not for Constance now, but with, for example, for the other cohort that we had called Gazelle, the sample of people working in the French utility, you know, Electricité de France, Gaz de France. And in fact, we collaborated with our colleagues in England and we compared, for instance, social inequalities in health. And we found very interesting thing. The size of the inequalities were very equivalent. But when we looked at what were the diseases, it was not the same. In France, it's mainly cancer, uh, which is uh, socially uh, you know, graduated. And in, in England, it's cardiovascular disease. And when we looked at risk factors, for instance, regarding uh, diet, the social pattern of what you eat is very different. For instance, in England, there is a real social pattern of green uh, vegetables and fruits, but we, we didn't see that in France. It's much more even. You mean in England, if you have more money, you, you're probably eating fresher food. Yeah, but that was not the case in France. Everybody had the same kind of... There was differences, of course, but it was not driven by the social position of person. I must confess that we didn't expect that before looking at the data. One of the most recent uh, things that came out of this data is the being able to identify the presence of the COVID virus in France before actually it appeared in China. Yeah. And you found this out through, through blood samples. We collect blood and urine samples and we store them in liquid nitrogen for later use. And in fact, we began to collect uh, biological uh, samples uh, by the, in the end of 2018 and put them in our biobank. And uh, when the COVID came, we took 9,000 samples and we analyzed them for looking for COVID serology. And it appears that, in fact, we, we found some positive cases much before uh, the first official case in France. The first official case in France was January 24th, and uh, we, we found positive cases as soon as the beginning of November of the year before. This is also supported by the French Social Security and the French public health system. How much say do they have in it, and how useful is that for a public health system to have this kind of information? But for instance, the Ministry of Health asked us to give them some data on hypertension in France, how it is distributed over the territory, is there social differences, 
do people take their treatment uh, and things like that. So we made a, we use the data from uh, Constance to say it is like that in France. So it allows them to then maybe modify how they're treating it in different territories. Yeah, they, they said we want to devise some policy. So we, we, we gave them the data that they needed. Uh, Ministry of Health also asked, you know, uh, is there an easy access to doctors in France? Because there's there's concerns in France about medical deserts and, you know, how, how many doctors there are per population. Yeah, and for some medical specialties, it's very... Uh, for instance, if you need to see an ophthalmologist for eye, the delay could be very long. So so we, we were able to document. So, so there was an additional survey to the participants of Constance. We asked them, each time you are trained to take an appointment with a doctor, could you record... Uh, the days that you ask and when you are doing something like that. It is this kind of thing that the public health uh, uh, system uses, uh, Constance. So this is a huge amount of information. You know, obviously people have opted in and all this stuff. But um, is there a concern about putting all this stuff in one place and, and who gets to have access to it? Of course, there is a big concern about that. It's very sensitive data. We, we ask very sensitive questions about, for instance, cannabis use or sexual orientation and things like that. We can see that they, they really answer honestly to, to this question, even if it's difficult because they trust us that uh, the data will not be uh, accessed. So, so, of course, that was a very big concern for us. Je suis l'homme à tête de chou. Sarah, before we go, a quick shout-out to singer-songwriter Serge Gainsbourg. I am a big fan. Right, right. Mm. France has been marking the 30th anniversary of his death this week in 1991. Yeah, he's very much loved and admired here. But in the age of Me Too and Me Too incest here in France, some of his work does seem a bit problematic. Mm -hmm. For example, the concept album, Homme à tête de chou, is considered a masterpiece. It's the story of a 40-year-old's love for a young hairdresser, but it turns into a story of femicide. If you flinch, I'll wring your neck, the narrator tells his lover, Marie-Lou, and in a fit of jealousy, he smashes her head with a fire extinguisher. Mm. And then there's the song Lemon Incest, which Gainsbourg recorded in 1984 with his 12-year-old daughter, to Charlotte. The title plays on the words zest and incest. And in the video, we can see a topless Serge lying next to Charlotte on a double bed, and they sing about the love that they cannot make together. So that's a pretty risque song and all that subject matter. Um, have people turned against Gainsbourg and his music? No, they haven't. No. Uh, and far be it from me to encourage cancel culture. But uh, Gainsbourg is here in France more popular than ever. Hmm. Well, our listeners, Alison wrote a long piece about Gainsbourg in the Me Too era. You can check it out on RFIEnglish.com. And that brings us to the end of Spotlight on France this week.
Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. Why not send us questions or comments? You can send those into spotlight.france at rfi.fr. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, March the 18th. And until then, you can find previous episodes of Spotlight on France at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye, Alison. Bye.